I've known since I was quite young that I was different. I've always felt the world would be better if we took stuff away rather than keep adding to it. I stepped into business 15 years ago and I was told you're very young for this. Where's your life experience? You haven't got a safety net. You haven't got a network. You grew up on a council estate. You sound very northern. You're black. Black people don't set up businesses. But I think it's really important that for the next generation of young black neurodivergent boys that they actually see what's possible. Someone's got to be bold and brave enough to be that voice. Today's guest is not only an academic powerhouse, he's also a seriously impressive entrepreneur. Lee Chambers is a business psychologist, radio host, and the founder of Essentialized Wellbeing. But most importantly, he's an inspiring role model to his autistic son. Even though, like me, he was diagnosed autistic later in life, it was clear from a young age that Lee thought differently. We got a brilliant insight today into Lee's mind, and I was transfixed by his knowledge, self-awareness, and passion. Let's get into it. Let's see how great minds think differently. I've always been one to think about how we can make a difference in the future. Obviously, my journey has shaped my kind of lens on life and my perspective to be about the impact that can be made and how to empower and enable others. So that means that sometimes you actually strip back what you've achieved and actually realise that that is fundamentally in the past. While it's nice to get recognition, while it's quite powerful to be told, keep going on the pathway that you're doing because you are making a difference, I'm very much about thinking, like many entrepreneurs, what's the next thing that can be disrupted? What's the next potential aspect we can challenge within society? And given the place where we're currently in as a nation and as a wider society and as a species, uh, yeah, a bit of recognition is nice, but we've got a whole lot of stuff to tackle. And where do you think, I guess, from a a neurodivergence perspective, where do you think society is currently? I mean, it's really interesting because obviously I get kind of perspective across different nations, across different cultures. And the interesting thing is it's way behind where it could be. I feel an element of that is intentional. I was out in Belfast last week speaking to a global audience about this topic and people's receptiveness and understanding and simple awareness of neurodiversity as a concept is only just coming to the fore in some places. And we are having to try and define and redefine what it is. And, you know, like I'm quite passionate about, it exists within a very medical clinical model structure, yes. which really identifies it from a research perspective. So it's been researched for probably 100 years, realistically, if we think like surgery has been researched for hundreds of years. So it's still in its young days in terms of understanding. And we see that in how it plays out. But for me, the most important thing is that we move away from the perspective that is so often peddled about neurodiversity. And what is that? What is, what is that rhetoric, I guess, that's peddled that you see that's just not helpful? So the biggest thing for me is that it's a deficit that it's a disease and that it's a disorder. So in the medical model, it's seen as something that needs to be treated, something that needs to be cured, something that ultimately is a problem. And the truth is, for me, it's a difference. Mm -hmm. It's a variation. The way I almost like to think about it is it's very similar to being left-handed. The whole world is created for right-handed individuals. Yeah, I'm left-handed. It's designed in a way where door handles, scissors, yeah. Yeah. everything 
operating a shower, operating vehicles. Yeah. Everything's designed around this right-handed normative design. Like, imagine everyone is, when a good, what, 11% of the population is left-handed. Yeah. And those adaptations to allow left-handed people to actually use a pair of scissors effectively is a massive barrier if a left-handed pair of scissors doesn't exist. Because of how that is a variation, neurodiversity is also a variation. It's a difference. It's the divergence of thinking mm -hmm. that allows for different concepts and ideas to be brought to the table. You know, neurodivergent individuals are incredibly powerful at certain things that the typical world generally either misses out, forgets, or doesn't join the dots. Why have we missed the positives? For me, Ben, numerous aspects to that. Firstly, in how it's been researched. So fundamentally, I, as far as I'm aware, every researcher in the early stages of neurodiversity research was neurotypical scientists, right? Okay. Or at least they thought they would have been and would have adapted to a neurotypical world, a neurotypical field. And also the research was only done on a very small segment of the population, young, white, relatively well-off boys yeah. who were identified as not really fitting in the typical educational system. And off they went to be researched to find out well, why weren't they fitting in the system. And so much of our data that we have, so much of our research until the past five years, so much of what we consider, even the diagnosis schema are built off that very research on one small subsegment of the population, which means that even our understanding of it today is a real challenge because it doesn't look at how it impacts in girls and women. It doesn't look how it manifests in different cultural groups. So we have this very typical view of what it is even though it's not typical in how it presents. Because if you meet one autistic individual, you've actually met one autistic individual. Yes. And so as a black autistic man uh, who was diagnosed, I think, when you were 35, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's correct. So given that, you know, you are a, a big brain psychologist you understand what's gone on in the medical side, the research side, and how that's playing out in society. How, like, how, how do you feel about that? It's, it's interesting, Ben. Obviously, I've known since I was quite young that I was different. I've known how I think differently than others. I've known that I communicate differently. I've, you know, had some of those social challenges trying to work it in a typical way and finding that that didn't really work very well for me. But I've also had the challenges of working within a culture that has a lot of mistrust of that very medical system. In a culture where there is hyper-masculinity, for mm. example, things around gang culture. If I think about how I was sometimes with my cousins, they all wanted to hang about on the street. I wanted to take apart Commodore 64 and work out why it worked. Yes. So I was actually very different than the expectation and stereotype of being a young black boy as well. So I was kind of othered from numerous different directions and quite often felt on the outside. And, you know, academically, I was all right. I was very lucky to be able to pretty much memorise things and just put it back out again. And yeah. that was absolutely fine until GCSE. I actually had to start thinking after education there. Yeah. Uh, but when I look back and kind of think about the lack of research in different groups, obviously for women as a whole gender, 51% of the global population, that doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous that we don't have any understanding of how it manifests in women. And the people you've had on this show will talk about their journey because we didn't even speak about these things, really. Like, I didn't find out about autism until I was at university. 
So I, I didn't even know it was a thing when I was a kid. Yeah. So it's that kind of, for me, how does it feel? Well, I do feel that we, you know, a bit of a raw deal, to be honest. I think that a lot of people have not had the support that they could have had, the understanding. Because when I got diagnosed, I had two things, right? I had liberation. All of a sudden, I had something to attribute some of my challenges and it made some level of sense. I knew that that was still going to have to develop because it was built off such a small set, so sample set. But also, I was frightened. There was fear there. There was yeah. fear. And having to kind of delve back into your past and work out, you know, what was you? What was, you know, what was you being artistic? What was autism and just you? And you had to kind of even almost go through give yourself some forgiveness for the things that had happened in your life, but gradually try and weave to understand, you know, where you are, what you can do, and fundamentally try and just ensure that your identity matches because there's a lot of dissonance in the world. Diagnosis for me uh, was a, you know, a bit like someone giving me the keys, right? Yeah. Um, they're not opening the door, but they're giving me the keys and I can sort of help to try and make sense of myself. Um how well how well do you think you know yourself now post diagnosis um versus pre yeah so i think obviously i've gone through some challenges in my life that forced me to become more self-aware and more emotionally intelligent the mental health issues i had at university which now i kind of see and have some understanding there was an element of autistic burnout there that kind of amplified some of the issues that i was having adolescent adult transitions are hard for everyone uh, but I'd moved to a city, had to try and live independently, working a job because I couldn't afford not to. Uh, so I had a lot going on there, but I'd, had to, I'd fallen out of university and had to move back home. And that had given me a year to work on that self-awareness. When I got made redundant off my grad scheme, again, I had to work on it. When I lost the ability to walk, I had to learn to walk again. Again, I had to work on these aspects of my identity. So I felt like I knew myself quite well because I'd been forced into adversity, which had made me search inside and actually get me better being able to explore myself because when I was younger I felt like I didn't have the keys and then you look outwards and try and find role models who are like you and I didn't find any so that was a bit of a crisis when I was younger. Do you do you see more role models today for you? Um, in some ways yes as in people who look and sound like me in the fields that I'm in Okay, but I still feel that I'm quite often the role model um, and especially in the black autistic and neurodivergent community, we have quite a few women very much leading the charge. And that's great to see because they sit at that intersection of being black, autistic and or ADHD or dyslexic and a woman. Yes. And the barriers they face are pretty intense because of those intersections piling up. But in the black male autistic community, for example, it literally sometimes feels like it's just me. Which is why I know that you either refer to yourself or people refer to you as the black autistic guy. Yeah. And I, I, I know we're both kind of smiling about that, but there's a part of me that I feel very, I feel sad and angry to hear that because you're not alone. Mm -hmm. um, you know you're not alone. Yep. Uh, but the world or society has, as you've talked about, conditioned our perspectives and infrastructure to ensure that you do feel alone. And that's that's kind of dreadful and, and I guess part of why we're talking and why you do what you do to 
spread the message so that you're not alone because other people can see themselves in you and identify and relate. And ultimately, we can try and build a environment that's more open-minded and supportive and yeah. inclusive in that sense. Yeah, and I think that, you know, sometimes you have to be the one who takes that step out. There are others in the space who I know who are also, some are more vocal, some more behind the scenes. Uh, but I think it's really important that for the next generation of young black neurodivergent boys that they actually see what's possible, both in terms of not only just achievement, mm-hmm. but an ability to actually build things, an ability to, you know, I mean, you Google black autistic man and the also fill will fill in being killed, being imprisoned. Still to this day, wow. it was worse a few years ago. But it brings up stories of black autistic men who've ended up being killed, who've ended up being burgled, who've ended up inside in prison. And that's what your autofill is. And it's only now that we're starting to get enough traction on the world's biggest search engine to be able to actually showcase something positive on that front page of Google. And now we live in a world where, you know, people are searching, not so much on Google anymore, people are searching on YouTube, TikTok, and banging stuff into uh, generative AI machines, which are biased as hell. Uh, and a re- that's that's a whole other episode, Ben, <laughs> about the stuff that that will spout out from the large language models that are yeah, riddled with this same very stuff that we're talking about, right? But the world that we live in today, you know, we've got to be able to, if people can see what's possible, if people feel that there is some level of representation, even if you can feel a bit lonely at the intersection and almost a little bit tokenistic because there's just not that many voices, someone's got to be bold and brave enough to be that voice and take that space up because otherwise the space will be taken up by what the media put out, which is, you know, stories that are negative. So we've got to try and reclaim that space. And so you were, I know, a a big sort of, drive for your diagnosis was your son's diagnosis um how how was that process how did that feel yeah i mean there's there's so much within that story ben um so he's now 10 he'll be 11 in a few weeks so he's in his final year of primary school being an artistic father to an artistic son can be interesting sometimes (laughs) when you when both of your systems collide and there was one time we were walking in the woods and I was going one way and he didn't want to go that way. So he actually went the other way, got himself lost. I had to go and find him in the woods. And then my wife turned up and was like, what? It was, it was uh, but he used his, he used his abilities to actually navigate back to the car park. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a beauty there, but I realised maybe as an adult, I should be slightly less stubborn with that. Uh, but no, we have an amazing relationship because we spent a lot of time together. Uh, he's got like a range of interests, which is really powerful. Uh, but his diagnosis journey, I mean, he was, he, he didn't speak for the first 18 months of his life. He was clever. He'd just grunt and point and adults would go and do stuff for him. Efficient. Efficient. <laughs> when he was two, he started speaking. By the time he was two and a half, he had the vocabulary of a typical 10-year-old. It was quite amazing because he could converse with adults, which really made adults quite uncomfortable because you've got this toddler who's like stood next to you talking about like politics that he'd overheard. And it was just, it was interesting. We took him right so, to our GP and it was a locum, so she'd never met him before. And me and my wife sat down and talked about some of some of our thoughts around it. And she was like, you should put him on YouTube, is what the GP said. 
because he was just sat there chatting to her like he was an adult and she was an adult. And he actually, she actually was like, this is quite... Almost, you could see her face like, this is quite entertaining. You should put him on YouTube. We're there to kind of say, look, there's a clear difference there. He, he's, he's... A doctor's not he, an agent. Yeah, he's, he's up here and he's struggling to talk to his peers at playgroup because they just... He, he's he's just operating and finds it very, very easy to socialise with adults. So he's, he's standing with the ladies at playgroup and having a good old chat to them yeah. instead of playing with the other children. And... That really, that was like how it was for a few years. We just got bounced out of the system. So what we actually did is my my wife works at a school and we managed through the school to get an educational psychologist to come and do an assessment so that the NHS might take it seriously. Uh, so we had to fund that ourselves. But you know, we got to a point where we realised we were just bouncing off that door. And if we didn't do something to give us that validation from beyond what we think, that actually we might spend years bouncing off and he might not get the support he needs for things like primary to secondary transition, yeah. which is coming in the next year, for example. So we got that report, and obviously through that report, the Ed Psych does and has an interview with him, gives him some tasks, you know, does a, does bits and pieces with him, and then you have some parental interviews afterwards. Okay. So I sat down with my wife, and the Ed Psych's asking us questions and you know things about ourselves and things about our relationship to Miles and. At the end of that, he kind of, he's like, you know, kind of said, oh, I'll send, I'll send, I'll send you reports here, take a week or so, blah, blah. And then says, Lee, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And it's just like, it's that little bit of validation. Because I've always known I was different as well. I've known that by the time I was free, I could tell the time on an analog clock. You could put that in any place and I'd be able to tell you what the time was. In fact, my birthday cake when I was three years old was an analog clock. Uh, and I think my parents were incredibly proud of that. Uh, but I just had abilities with patterns. I had an ability to join things up. I had the ability to see those interconnections that others didn't. Uh, but I struggled with other things like writing. Um, so I suppose the biggest thing is it's a pleasure to have Miles as my son. Uh, he's kind of helped me unlock some of my own things. Uh, that's not to say it isn't challenging sometimes, but fundamentally, you know, I can sit and talk to him for hours and, you know, the world just floats by. But he's just a joy to be with. And, you know, I kind of felt that part of it, me getting my diagnosis, yeah, a little bit was for me. But actually, it was so that he could go on the journey with someone else. And what does what does Miles know? I mean, he's clearly super bright, um, as you are. Is he aware? He's autistic. Does he know what that means? Yeah, so he was seven when he got diagnosed. And me and my wife, you know, had a conversation about, you know, how do we tell him? Mm. What do we tell him? How much do we tell him? Because he's seven. What we actually decided is, is we'll tell him. Because he will read the letters anywhere. Because um, the, the letters are like, the letters are addressed to us, but they've got his name on. Um, so we talked to him about it and kind of, we told, we kind of framed it to him that, you know, you're autistic. It's a difference. Doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. It means you'll have some things you're really good at. It will also mean there's some things you really struggle at, like putting your underpants on the right way in the morning, because we, we experience this all the time. Um, so it kind of, it, it just helped him to understand and be able to own that difference and actually feel and understand why he does struggle with some things. Like he even identified when he was, I think he was probably six, and his sister's, you know, 21 months younger. 
and we were on a park in Lancaster, and she went off and made a friend. And Miles was like, why does Annabelle find it so easy to make friends? I find it so hard. And it's just, he's always been aware of those things because he's got he's got heightened perception uh, of things because he's very observant. He watches, picks things up, just like I used to. Uh, so him having an understanding is helping him to shape it, him to take ownership of it, not for it, it to be labelled. And we obviously have to try in that way to kind of explain also that the world has its own opinions on this mm. and that people are on different parts of that journey to understanding what it means, but kind of helping him appreciate that, again, there will be some things that you will struggle with that others might not, but there are some things you will be very, very good at way beyond what others are. And so when you when you kind of look to Miles's future, I, I hear an, a really strong undertone of hope. Mm-hmm crystal ball time what do the next 20 years look like in terms of society's journey where where do you think we can get to need to get to yeah well how i think ben is that society is an interesting place in itself we're going through significant challenges and changes at the minute in fact there's a crisis pretty much everywhere um, and crises just follow. Like, there's a reason why perma crisis was like the word of the year in 2021, right? Because there's so much going on. I suppose for me, I think about those young people who are putting out the reality. That's creating quite a tidal wave of change amongst a generation that actually in 20 years' time will be the generation that's sat here like we are today. Uh, and they are have a heightened awareness, a much wider understanding they do live in a more polar world and they do live in a world where they, the sources they consume are wide, widely ranging and not always the very traditional structured expertise that have existed when we were sat there reading encyclopedias as kids. Like, mm-hmm. what does this mean? Uh, I mean, that presents both challenges and opportunities because now a lot of information around neurodiversity comes from neurodiverse individuals, which has a power because so often things have been designed, written and expressed without any input from us whatsoever. Yes, um, for us. Yeah, exactly. And, or at us, maybe. And the truth is, or the biggest thing for me is, people being able to see that neurodivergent individuals sometimes need a little bit of support. But actually, sometimes we can be the ones who support others. And there's real power in being able to showcase that like through the work that we do. I'm using some of those skills to actually support organisations, to support in education. And it's not me who needs to be supported all the time. I can actually support others. That's a really powerful distinction from the models of the past. Um, But it's starting to move away from its deep ties with learning disability because for some neurodivergent individuals, they are and do have a learning disability. It massively impacts their ability to go through a very standardised educational system, right? Uh, and we don't have time on this episode, I don't think, to unpack that one. <laughs> um, but in the next 20 years, I am hopeful. I am optimistic. There are voices. Colour will come to neurodiversity across all different cultures, all different intersections. And I'm in the place where I hope like by 2040, we'll finally actually see 
that when we look at neurodiversity across the population, that it's actually everyone. It's not one group of young white boys. It's women, it's men. It's people from all parts of the globe, young and old. It's everyone. Mm. And people have neurodiversity in their life, indirectly impacting them. Because truth be told, everyone is connected to someone who's neurodivergent. Yeah, I mean, especially as you know, 1.6 billion people are meant to be neurodivergent amongst, you know, 7, 8 billion, that's everybody's connected, everybody knows someone. I'd like to talk about how entrepreneurs and you as an entrepreneur can harness, you know, neurodivergence. So I think, firstly, we almost have to kind of like be honest about the reality. Like how many neurodivergent entrepreneurs do you know? Hopefully a few that are coming on this show. Well, exactly. They best get themselves here because there's a lot to be spoken about. But fundamentally, I meet a lot of founders. And while I'm not in a place to diagnose or disclose, I would say a good percentage of them, higher than the general population, are neurodivergent. Okay. And I kind of see that playing out because you get a resonance and a sense when you meet them of just how they think, communicate, interact, some of the sensory challenges that they have. So I suppose for me, I didn't last that long in the corporate world. Uh, and there are reasons for that. Numerous different reasons. I'm quite outspoken. I see efficiencies. I can't let it go. Mm -hmm. I've also got quite a strong core of social justice. So I was that child who would end up getting in trouble because one kid picked on another. So I would go and address that. Uh, they might have stolen a toy off another kid. I'd steal the toy off that kid and give it back to the original kid and they get told off for stealing the toy, right? So I've always been like that. But being put into a box and not having variety is a real kind of trigger for me. It doesn't work very well. I don't like to be restrained and I don't like to have to do the same thing repetitively too much. And some people look at that and think, but don't artistic people like repetition? And it's like, well, no, because we are quite varying at how we are. I don't like repetition. I like novelty. Okay. And I like my weeks to have different things. Like, I'm here today. Another day I'll be sat in my office doing some of the typical grinding, very non-glamorous entrepreneurial stuff that you have to do that no one ever talks about. Another day I'll probably be on a stage sharing some insights and meeting some people. It's like, I like that variety, but for me... When I think about my entrepreneurial journey, you know, I stepped into business 15 years ago when entrepreneurship was seen as incredibly risky. And I was told when I went seeking mentorship from people who'd been there and done it, that I was, I was, firstly, I was very young. You're very young for this. Where's your life experience? You black. Black people don't set up businesses. You haven't got a safety net. Like, I don't know any black entrepreneurs. You, you'd be the first. You're just a whippersnapper, right? Um, that had an attitude because the stereotypes around that, most founders have an attitude. It's what gets them enough, enough kind of uh, naive belief in themselves to actually go and do things, which other people say, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? I call that a delusion. Well, but it's yeah. really important. Yeah, you, you need a healthy dose of naive optimism yes. that things are going to work. And you can make it work and you're the person to make it work. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you will never take that step. 
I mean, people would have said, you know, non-alcoholic, alcoholic drink. <laughs> Why? Would no one's going to buy that. Um, it's just like, just even thinking back to like when I started 15 years ago, yeah, a lot of people said, you know, this is silly. You haven't got a network. You've got you've got very little by way of funding. You know, you grew up on a council estate. You sound very northern. Like, what chance are you going to stand? What's Bolton ever produced? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, mill towns up there. <laughs> you know, whippets and whippets and farmers' courts and stuff. It's like, but I went and did it. I went and did it and made it happen. And I think, why? Why you? Why? Why you? Yeah. So I, I think part of me is just contrarian by nature. Yes. I don't like to conform, and I know that humans generally, if they're told to not do something they do it and if they're told to do something they don't do it but that gets beaten out of you by the marketing campaign that is adulthood my thing is curiosity so I'm constantly curious I try to be very respectful with it right Ben but fundamentally when people are like you can't do it I'm like I will show you how I will show you I can are you competitive I have a competitive spirit but also I think that fundamentally that has been tempered somewhat by knowing where I'm strong and where I'm not. So I'd turn up, play sport at school, right? Most sports, I was in that, that bottom bottom 50% I was never going to make a sportsman, right? But it didn't stop me going and putting a shift in. So I've always had a work ethic. My parents give me that, you know? They, they worked hard in the world of social mobility back in the day to give me the opportunities that I had. So I've got a work ethic and I've got drive, sometimes maybe too much drive. Mm. Uh, and I've probably left myself exposed at times due to having so much drive that I've not delegated early enough and so much drive that I've not always listened to those kind of reverse indicators about where things are going. Yeah, I um, I really begun to understand how you know my brain is built for efficiency and optimization. And that is, I, I want, my drive comes from, I want to make things better. So, yeah. I want to improve things. And the social justice moral compass side just feeds into that because yeah. it's about improving things and making them yeah. better. Uh, tell me, and it, it, it sounds like you can relate to that. Mm -hmm. Tell me how, how that efficiency drive helps you as an entrepreneur. Probably the biggest thing for me is that we live in this world of noise, right? It's got so much worse since I was a kid. There's stuff everywhere. Like we have like knowledge obesity. There's, there's, there's so much. We have this world of consumption that's like destroying the planet. We have this like disposable mindset where things break and we chuck it away and buy a new one. We have this idea that growth is the only metric that matters. And I've always felt very strongly about the world would be better if we took stuff away rather than keep adding to it. That's less, what fundamentally, less, less, less. That's what fundamentally drives me. My head is like less but better. How can we have less but better? And that's what's kind of, that's what drives me as an entrepreneur. How can we actually have the conversations that we need to have and reduce the noise we just don't need? How can we actually refine processes, design work better so that people have more manageable workloads and therefore they have more time to do the things they enjoy 
and are more healthier because of it. From your perspective as an autistic man, but also a psychologist, how how efficient do you think the workplace is now? Post-COVID, you know, um, as a system, this idea that obviously we go to an office and we do our work and then we go home and it's a nine to five. And how how do you think that traditional model of infrastructure fits with today's society? Well, it just doesn't, does it? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's a really binary answer. Um, and I appreciate there is nuance towards everything. But if we even look at the accommodations that need that can be made for neurodivergent individuals in those open plan offices where they just face every day under sensory overload, we realise that human beings have different levels of thermal comfort. So you've got this big big office space, air control temperature. You know, one person's sweating on the other side, the other person's freezing in the corner. But then we cannot we cannot build society for the individual no and we have problems with individualization and personalization yeah to a point where people can get things that are just for them incredibly quickly and that skewed expectations and also I suppose the capitalistic nature of the society we live in has created a lot of individualism when actually the changes we need to make are collective and collaborative so we kind of sit on this in this paradox where we need organizations to consider creating systems where individuals' needs can be met, but those need to be some level of autonomy and empowerment to be able to do that. So it needs to be that, you know, the person who's sweating can order themselves a desk fan without having to go through 17 different departments, sign off procurement, you know, get get forms to confirm it. That they can just have those accommodations, right? The person who's freezing in the corner can have a little heater by the desk just to keep them a bit warmer. That's what we're looking at. It's like you will have human beings a unique and variant. And actually, back to your previous question just for a minute, where do I want neurodiversity to be in 20 years? I want everyone to be neurodiverse. What do you mean by that? Because truth be told, everyone is. And I want to move away from this idea that it's like neurodivergent people versus neurotypicals. Mm -hmm. I'd actually like to move to a place where fundamentally left or right-handed neurodivergent or neurotypical you are just a human who uses one way or another but you're actually a human so to almost move away from this idea because truth is diversity is everyone right yes and a typical way of thinking is a typical way of thinking right which has been aligned as the standard but what is a typical way of thinking well exactly because even neurotypicals have variant spectrums for the way they think and the way they operate. Yes. So what I actually love is to strip all that back and remove this idea of normal and people just be accepted and celebrated for their uniqueness. Yes. And, and it's not done. I guess that that isn't just about people's brains, is it? That's treating an individual as the whole. Yeah. Rather than, okay, we've all got different fingerprints and we've no two brains are the same. Fine. But actually, no two humans, yeah, okay, there's going to be some medical argument there on twins, etc. But the thing is, twins have different epigenetic expressions based on the environments they're in and end up being different. Okay, so we can start from the basis of everybody is different. And I guess it's, I and we saw this a lot with, you know, drinking non-alcoholic drinks and uh, the journey that people go on, I guess, of... 
hold on a minute, I non-alcoholic drinks, what the hell is that? To then thinking, oh my God, do you know what? Uh, orange juice is a bit rubbish, actually. Oh, okay. And, and yeah. suddenly <laughs> you start to see the the social impact of changing people's perspectives. And I guess my sense of, you know, I was only diagnosed last year, is that society is at this place where there's a fantastic groundswell of committed, passionate brilliant people who are speaking up and speaking out and sharing wisdom, expertise, perspective and truths. Gradually, little by little, these little fires are beginning to start and, and catch. Uh, and, and it's sort of like, well, if, if society can get to that first level of awareness, that's actually in some ways not for people like us, yeah, you know, we're not the majority mm -hmm. and we need the majority to rid itself of some of the stigma and myth that has gone on for the last 50 years or so around dyslexia or Tourette's or autism or whatever the condition may be. And then I feel like we've got that hope of, to your kind of, point of Eden from a perspective of everybody's an individual and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that like the goal is okay. Yeah. Right? Acceptance. Yeah. Just acceptance for yeah. people being how they are. And we'll still live in legal frameworks. We'll still live in political systems. We'll still live in systems that, truth be told, these systems aren't going to update very quickly because they're all institutions that have been around for hundreds of years. And yet our awareness will always outstrip those systems. Uh, but it's the people within the systems that can actually change the systems. Yeah. So I think we're all part of that change. I think if we think about how campaigns to change public perception, take, for example, drink driving, that used to be absolutely fine. Not that long ago. Ah, oh, yeah. 10 beers in the pub, drive home, no worries. Seatbelts, no, I don't need that. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, there's there's a significant change in behaviours. Look at other countries where they've kind of eliminated things such as littering by changing public perspectives. So it's possible. We just need a really aligned, collective way of coming together to do that. And fundamentally, I don't want to be the black artistic guy because there's millions of black artistic guys. And, you know, if we can look at how do we amplify their voices to make sure that, you know, the future of neurodiversity is as colourful as the human race itself, then, you know, we'll have done a good job, right? I could listen to you just, yeah, I could listen to you just keep talking, Lee. If somebody's out there and, and listening and they're struggling or they're a bit confused or um, neurocurious in the sense of, Maybe they think they relate to some of what we've said or what would be your advice to that listener or watcher? You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not on your own. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. You've been listening to The Hidden 20%. If you're still knocking about, then let me introduce you to the band. First up, main man on the mic, host Ben Branson. Our wonderful producer, Bella Neal. 
and the man who'll probably try and cut this bit, video editor James Scriven. Not forgetting our wondrous theme tune by Jackson Greenberg. Lovers or haters, we want to know, so be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. For the lovers amongst you, you'll find us on TikTok and Instagram at Hidden20Podcast or over on Hidden20.org where you can join our mailing list. <laughs>